0: welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Contact Tracing the Coronavirus, Part 1. Heather Hatcher of the City Bar's Health Law Committee and Science and Law Committee, Wesley Paisley, Secretary of the City Bar's Information Technology and Cyber Law Committee, and Tim Peterson, a member of the City Bar's IT and Cyber Law Committee, speak with Professor Joseph Ali and Dr. Brian Hutler of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar.
1: Hi, I'm Tim Peterson of the Information
2: Technology and Cyber Law Committee. And I am here with Wesley Paisley and Heather Hatcher. Hi, Tim, and hi, Ever. Hello. Although progress seemed to have been made where we are recording, at a socially responsible distance in New York, other areas of the country and the world have seen spikes in COVID-19 cases. And of course, New York is not out of the woods yet. One solution that is being implemented is contact tracing. On behalf of New York City Bar Association, we've sampled two panels and one expert interview on some of the aspects of contact tracing.
3: Digital solutions to expand the reach of contact tracing and enduring an effective public health containment measure have been proposed and are being implemented in the COVID-19 response, but they are not without ethical, privacy, and legal implications. This podcast addresses some of the issues with this proposed intervention. On July 10th, we were joined by Joseph Ali, a lawyer, bioethicist, and an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, and by Brian Hutler, JD, PhD, a Hecht Levi, Postdoctoral fellow at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, who both co-authored a recently published report entitled "Digital Contact Tracing for Pandemic Response: Ethics and Governance Guidance." Ninja, thank you.
4: Sure. Yeah.
3: Ready when you are. Yeah. All right. Um, do either of you have a strong preference as to who wants to go first in terms of the public health rationale for contact tracing?
4: Uh, I'm happy to. I'm happy to start. And um, Brian can jump in on that whenever whenever it feels appropriate.
3: Right, so digital contact tracing has been recommended as for its use in trying to mitigate and contain COVID-19 and the spread of it in the United States and around the world. Can you explain a little bit about the public health rationale for using contact tracing in general?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, So contact tracing is sort of a traditional tool, you know, in the toolbox of public health professionals and practitioners. Um, It's uh, an important part of disease control um, and containment. Um, So it usually involves things like uh, identifying an infected person, in this case as a COVID-19 case, um, identifying their close contacts, so who they came in proximity with. Um, getting in touch with those contacts, so you need to be able to know who that is, who those individuals are, and know how to get in touch with them. Um, and then asking those contacts to take certain sort of protective measures usually. Um, in, in, in the case again of COVID, we're talking about you know, quarantining at home for up to 14 days. Um, you know, maybe putting on, uh, being extra careful with, with um, your movements and wearing other sorts of protective equipment. Um, and then uh, usually that involves further assessment by public health professionals to of those contacts uh, for pot- potential symptoms and then follow up both with the, with the initial case, the individual who was infected and their contacts to identify any new or worsening symptoms and connect them with medical care if they need and, and provide other kinds of forms of social support. So it's a pretty, um, you know, hands-on process that involves collection of Oftentimes, identifying and identifiable information um, and potentially, you know, either calling people or visiting them at their place of work or even at their home, in order to um, to 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 undertake this process. And the reason for all of that, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, is to um, be able to uh, control the transmission of the disease from person to person by isolating these cases, case. and contacts, and just limiting the spread. Um, so that's that's sort of the the process, and I think the public health rationale for that for that process, in general. And,
3: and you said that this is has been in the public health sort of toolbox for years. So do you have examples of other diseases or other infections in which it's been used?
4: Yeah. So for nearly nearly every major outbreak that we've had in in the history, recent history of public health, it's it's been used, and and that's true um, in many places around the world. Um, you know more most recently I think we've evolved um, followed news um, globally in, in East in West Africa but also in in parts of the United States when the Ebola virus ap- outbreak took place um, in 2014 2015 and that um, contact tracing was a was a major part of that um, that effort in West Africa in particular and then in the United States when people started to fly back to the US either for treatment or um, um, or for other reasons, um, in order to contain the spread of, of Ebola. But even outside of Ebola, I mean, other kinds of coronaviruses, like the SARS virus, um, were, contact tracing was also a key part of that. And in major cities around the world, and in Toronto and in Hong Kong and other places. Um, so yeah.
3: And, and given that it has been used with different. Different um, diseases around the world. Um, have you found that with certain diseases, there's a certain stigma that's attached to the disease, or in in the process that people are less likely to be actively involved or want to participate in contact tracing as a result of that stigma that might be attached to a particular particular virus?
4: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and and as as I think you were indicating, you know, more more so for some disease and conditions than others, though certainly across the board, um, there are there's a potential for stigma with an infectious disease of any type, um, and and so when you look at um, you know diseases that uh, such as HIV, you know this, where there's a, a significant history of stigma uh, around the, the disease, you sort of see more concern around that. Um, but I, I think in 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 the context of COVID, even you know we see Particular communities um, who are more reluctant, perhaps, to engage in processes, um, contact tracing, even even though they, um, you know, they they are aware, certainly, of the, the importance of of um, needing to to take measures as public health uh, public health measures in order to contain the virus. Um, but but I think in West Africa, I mean, something we saw with the Ebola virus was that. Um, there were, there were a lot of suspicions that were spreading within communities about how the virus was being spread and how it was introduced and, um, and what people were entering communities, the purpose for which you know government officials and others from the international community were entering communities for, and, and a lot of those suspic- uh, suspicions made it very difficult to, to pursue a range of different public health countermeasures, but including contact tracing. Um, So, so I think you know there there are various types of diseases again where where those concerns are more significant, and certainly in certain communities within which the concern about stigma and about other kinds of social harm are are more prevalent. Um, And
3: traditionally, oh, sorry, Joe.
4: No, no, go ahead.
3: You mentioned traditionally that this is a role of public health that public health officials take on to sort of perform contact tracing. And so how might that be different in the context of COVID-19 as digital contact tracing applications have been recommended or starting to um, be
4: proposed? Yeah, that's a great question. I, what, maybe it helps to back up a little bit and just say maybe the obvious that um, with COVID-19, uh, we, we just currently don't have enough. Sort of manual or traditional contact tracing capabilities in the United states and and in many countries around the world um, and that's kind of the the premise for the entry point in part for for digital means for supporting um, contact tracing or other related kinds of activities um, and and you know some have done sort of surveys and evaluations of of the need and of the available resources for contact tracing, for example, across the U.S. And um, not very long ago, um, you know, there were estimates that were suggesting that perhaps um, only one state out of our fifty states was were a, was able to currently meet the estimated need for contact tracers and uh, in terms of public health um, personnel and other related capacities, and that maybe six or seven other states were on the trend towards being able to likely meet that estimated need, but all the remainder of the states across the US were, were not meeting the, the need. And, and so that, that in part relates to how quickly, you know, the coronavirus is spreading across the US, prevalence case load and, and other kinds of issues that were, that, um, that were present and are continue and, to be present.
3: And yes, this is a highly transmissible Disease and just, yeah, exactly. is that making it more difficult to sort of contain because of that? We haven't done a very good job of of containing. Yeah, that.
4: that's that's exactly right. It, it it does transmit at a fairly high rate, um, um, and and we're still trying to understand exactly how it's transmitting. You know, in terms of um, individuals who are symptomatic versus um, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, and um, and looking very closely at sort of whether there are um, certain kinds of individuals and or locations, um, through which, you know, coronavirus tends to spread, um, more significantly, but I mentioned, you know, the, the, the gap, so to speak in, in, available contact tracing resources as being one of the drivers for, for digital contact tracing. The other one is just the fact that, um, you know, we, we all have these, these technologies mobile phones, smartphones, many of us have the, them in our pockets and, um, and there have, had been, prior to the outbreak, um, a number of different apps and, and, um, and, and social media sort of um, resources that have been developed by technology companies to support social networking and identifying, you know, your friends and other kinds of, um, um, and even individuals you might want to date and others that within your proximity, using similar types of technologies uh, to fulfill other kinds of social desires and, and goals, and so there there was an opportunity to leverage this kind of digital wave um, you know that we're riding in, across society, along with the the sort of opportunity to look at these existing technologies and align them with the with the goal of the contact trees.
3: and then I'd like to ask Brian if you could speak to just the political will for engaging with digital technology in this way, to use it just as a method of oversight of human beings, I'm gonna use the word oversight even though maybe that's that's a scary word, but uh, do you think there's political will to use contact tracing, uh, digital applications of contact tracing?
1: I think that's a hard question. I think the short answer is maybe no, but- But back up a a step. So when we go, when we look at traditional contact tracing, the law surrounding it is pretty well established and pretty favorable in a way to the efforts of pretty supportive of the efforts of public health authorities. So public health authorities have broad legal authority to collect uh, information about not just people who test positive, but also their contacts, personal identifying information, and store that information up and use it to try to track and contain the spread of an infectious disease like COVID. And they all, you know, public health authorities, if people are reluctant to comply for a variety of reasons, which Joe touched on, but I think might be worth get circling back to and thinking more about. Public health authorities have, um, you know, ability to compel compliance in some cases too through subpoenas and the like. We saw an example of that in Rockland Rockland County in New York's upstate um, recently. And, you know, so in a world where we had sufficient resources to do traditional contact tracing and sufficient cooperation together with the, the stick of a potential subpoena, there might not be any need for the digital supplement, but as Joe was touching on already, um, we don't have enough traditional contact tracers. That's partly just a a lack of political will dating back to the pre-COVID times a failure of public health authorities to maintain staff capable of performing this function, Um, mostly for budgetary reasons, right? Um, but then also, um, I think COVID is a an in- distinctive in- and scary infectious disease in so many ways, but what part of it is that people are, especially younger people, are prone to discount the risk to themselves and even to their friends and, and may perceive the harms of being identified as a contact The potential need for quarantine or for you know maybe being unable to go to work or losing your job potentially if quarantine lasts for a long time or if in fact you do test positive those harms social and economic may outweigh the perceived risk of actually contracting the disease or even of spreading it and and so I think the combination of not having sufficient resources for traditional contact tracing, plus the perhaps mistaken perception of COVID as not that bad in some quarters, led to this idea that we could finesse contact tracing by using this technology that already exists on people's phones. That we can in a way get greater buy-in and greater participation and greater coverage for public health authorities by in to my mind sort of manipulating the space in which people are operating so that they might not even know they're participating in a contact tracing program or not even really think about it in those terms and yet be contributing to the public health authorities efforts to track the spread so heather i'm afraid that didn't fully answer your question but that's kind of the where i start from in looking at kind of where we're at politically and socially and in I I think
3: that's really helpful because we're thinking about where I think the majority of the issues we see are coming out with uh, around the behaviors of young people. And so where are they situated, right? They are living in a very technologically savvy world and space. And so if we can use the devices that they use anyway, and they they enjoy in a way that helps the public, that would be really helpful. And so then I'll take a step back at this point just to talk about what is digital contact tracing? What are they recommending? What are our options, too?
4: Yeah, so, so there's, there's a bit of a ambiguity in, in even the term digital contact tracing um, because it signals that, that there are technologies that can do what traditional manual contact tracers do. And and currently there really isn't there we don't have technologies that do that um, and so so when we talk about digital contact tracing um, oftentimes people refer to um, to one particular thing which is oftentimes now more re- referred to as proximity detection or, or um, proximity or location sort of tracking
1: and those exposure notification
4: exposure right exposure notification and. And those <clears throat> those kinds of that terminology kind of was aligned with um, the, the, the work that Apple and Googles had sort of been more recently collaboratively doing uh, around this in, in developing their their API um, in order to support development of apps on top of that API that could that could do this kind of activity of exposure notification. And by exposure notification, what we mean is um is uh, using oftentimes the Bluetooth capabilities of telephones and mobile phones uh, in order to um, allow for apps to identify when individuals are in proximity to each other, close enough proximity to each other for a long enough time uh, to signal a potential exposure to COVID-19. And the way in which you'd know whether or not somebody was exposed was that an individual who tests positive for COVID-19 would enter their positive test result into their phones, and that would um, be recorded and stored. And when their phone came in proximity with someone else's phone, um, again, using Bluetooth technologies, the phones would basically talk to each other and send keys and coded encrypted keys um, and ping each other. And the person who would, on the other end, the contact would receive an alert on their phone that indicated they had been in, in proximity to someone who had tested positive for COVID-19 and therefore should um, you know, do something. And um, and so so the technolo- that's the idea behind, I think, the most dominant form of the technology is that this would happen between telephones, between mobile phones of individuals. Um, and, and we can talk about this more, but um, as, as it's being, proposed by Apple and Google uh, would happen in a very sort of decentralized way, meaning um, public health authorities would not be looped into that process. And identifiable information or data would would not be shared with anyone. um, And data would be deleted or or no longer exist on those telephones um, within a certain number of days, after a certain number of days. Uh, and yeah, so that's that's the sort of dominant model. But there are other approaches, and we we've seen globally other other approaches being used that get a little bit closer to what we think of when we say contact tracing. Um, but others have, are still exploring this technology and developing it. It's not a perfect technology. Blue, the Bluetooth transmission and signaling has lots of interference and issues around whether or not you can even identify. Um, you know, uh, you can really develop the technology in such a way that is sensitive and specific enough to be able to, to indicate anything about transmissibility of the disease, and, and there are people looking at GPS capabilities and whether that can, be supplement, that can supplement Bluetooth in order to provide a little bit more useful data. For example, people might be able to look back at their, their location map and see where they were at various points and times during the day in order to inform public health authorities about their movements when they need to, if they are contacted in order to support contact tracing. And so, so there are a range of other, of other kinds of technological capabilities and potential solutions out there that are being worked on currently. It just happens that the dominant one that we're most talking about, because Apple and Google have 100% of the sort of market share on this, is the approach that they're pushing forward through their technologies and then through the policies and, and terms and conditions that accompany those technologies that again, they've, they've largely established themselves.
3: This is a really big event to have these two competitors working together to try to address a public health need, right? In theory, this is a really good thing, but I see that there might be potential issues. We're relying a lot on, on people to voluntarily enter their COVID test results into whatever app they is ultimately developed. So we're relying on individuals to actually buy in to properly using this application. We have to figure out whether or not, or who's going to decide what level of proximity or what length of time is actually enough to trigger this notification, right? Are public health officials being looped in on that level if this is such a decentralized issue? I I would assume they are, but how, how are they if you know?
4: Yeah, well, it's, it's a good point. I mean, they actually, in, in the model, the doc, that dominant model that I described, um, they, they Apple and Google are, are, are absolutely sort of opposing the automatic looping in of public health officials as far as we can tell. Um, but they're leaving it to individuals to do that um, and, and to states to develop apps that would build in capabilities that would allow and, and sort of enable users to be able to, to do that looping in. Um, you know, if you're talking about encrypted anonymous keys and those sorts of things, um, sending it to public health officials won't be very helpful on its own. Um, Brian, so, do you want to say something? On yeah, that?
1: let me jump in there just to kind of hammer on this point that Joe touched on already. But um, originally, the federal government reached out to Apple and Google to because they're, they control something like 98% of the market share for mobile phone operating systems, right? That's the particular, I mean, these two companies are behemoths that do tons of stuff, but this is the reason why they're the two players in this space. Um, And originally they were tasked with designing an API, which is a software interface so that other people could build um, digital contact tracing apps that could then be used on phones that run either the Apple or the Google operating system that is nearly all phones in the US, right? So, um, right. So I think that initially that was a kind of in the public interest move on, the, you know, maybe cynically PR move, but, but, you know, but maybe legitimately in the public interest move on the part of Apple and Google. But as they started getting into developing this system and thinking about what they wanted it to actually do, concerns about user privacy and concerns about the ability of government agencies, including public health officials, to access fine-grained information, identifiable information about users, kind of swamped out or overcame the initial, um, maybe promise of actually doing something useful to slow the spread of COVID. And, um, and so the system that they designed is Extremely protective of user privacy, um, at least in theory. I mean, if there are glitches in the system or ways to illicitly access information, that's still a potential problem. But the way the system is designed to work, it's extremely protective of user privacy to the extent that, as Joe was saying, public health officials can't access identifiable information about users at all. Um, that is, users of the app, of whatever app ends up being developed using the system. And um, tech insiders eventually kind of came to a consensus that it was misleading to call this system contact tracing at all because it wasn't really playing that function. They were hoping it would play an analogous and still useful function, but it wasn't really performing contact tracing digitally. Um, and here's a way to think about it. The contact, traditional contact tracing, you start with the focus is on the individual who tests positive. Um, And then you work out from, or kind of backwards through the potential contacts within the last week or two of that individual. Um, But for a number of reasons, this system is designed more from the point of view of the individual users who have the app on their phone. And the system's designed from their point of view to alert you if within that period of time you've been in proximity of or exposed to someone who then subsequently tests positive. And that might seem like a subtle difference, but I think it actually makes a big difference because exactly because public health officials don't have any way to contact these people who may have been exposed directly. It takes, it flips the order of operation so that the people who have been potentially exposed, the onus is on them now to contact public health officials and find out what they should do. Um, So the the term exposure notification is supposed to kind of um, signal this recognition that what's going on is no longer contact tracing. At most, it's adjacent to contact tracing, a potential potential way to augment efforts of public health officials to conduct contact tracing. But crucially, only if the people who receive these notifications then take this extra step of reaching out to public health officials and trying to find out. Who who they were exposed to and what they should do about that potential exposure.
3: And in fact, it's not tracing anything at all, right? Nobody's right. actually
1: tracing. No, so we right, don't know yeah.
3: how it's spreading.
1: That's right. And I mean that's important too. The data that's collected and stored doesn't even, again, if the system works correctly because of the encryption mechanism, doesn't even let you determine. It doesn't even let the user determine who it was that they were in contact with. So, the the term exposure really is helpful in a way, I suppose, because um, all you know is that you've been exposed, not who you've been in contact with that may um, may have been po- uh, may have tested positive subsequently.
4: Yeah, and this sorry, sorry the, the point that Brian just made about um, about you know whether if this technology works is really important because we don't we don't know whether or not it's effective at achieving the desired goal, even for exposure notification, let alone contact tracing. So, so there's um, there's a lot of question out there about. Um, about again, wh- how do you measure performance and effectiveness? So there's sort of there are these empirical methods kind of questions about what what should we be even looking for in order to know whether or not this is working? How do we compare? Like what do we what should we compare to? And if we're thinking about search, you know, comparisons are really helpful to be able to know whether something is better than equivalent to or worse than the standard. Um, and how do we collect that information in, under this kind of system or model for contact tracing where everything is encrypted and anonymously identified, et cetera? Um, and so there are these really important questions out there about effectiveness and, and even just simple performance of these technologies as they're being rolled out really rapidly um, that we really need to look closely at. And, and states, um, understandably, are very hesitant right now to adopt these technologies. Because of, largely because of this question, they want to know. They're saying, tell me which one is going to work. I'm not going to adopt something that's going to fail because it's not going to be good for my, 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 for the population. And it's not going to be good for the trust in the public health authorities within my state. Um, and, And it could harm future efforts to use these technologies and, you know, down the road. Um, so so there's there's sort of reasonable um, hesitation on this um, for a number of reasons, including the privacy issues, but also because of the sort of concerns about effectiveness um, and and again i think I think the questions about effectiveness trickle up as well so if if it's up to users to in, to to alert public health authorities of um, when they've um, either been infected through an app or or um, when they're a contact or identified by this technology as a contact with somebody who tests positive, then um, the public health authorities presumably then have an obligation of some sort to do something, right? Um, and so that means they have to investigate. And and now imagine you have millions and millions of people using these technologies with pings going left and right, whether you know they could be accurate, they might not be. They might be from people sitting between walls, like sitting in a cafe and someone walks by. We don't know exactly, you know, Um, how much error there will be in those alerts and how that will affect the public health capabilities of those who are um, either required or um, obligated from an ethical perspective to respond. And, And that's a really important consideration. Those false positives, so to speak, or even false negatives can create significant inefficiencies in that system that's already taxed. We know, as we said before, That we don't have the capacity to do manual contact tracing at the level we need so imagine if you amplify that
1: right so just to jump or second what joe was saying i mean we were really concerned as we looked into the system that apple and google were collaborating to develop that instead of aiding the efforts of public health authorities it might just make things worse either because it kind of uh muddies the water as to what actually is contact tracing and what's effective, or just because the work workload piles up for the already um, time and cash-strapped public health officials.
3: We're in the midst of a, a protest, many protests, you know, and, and this desire for reform and police reform police reform and other types of reforms against systemic racism in this country. And so some people are concerned with the contact tracing or any kind of digital applications which are leading to telling people about their location or proximity to others, that that would be used for law enforcement purposes or other tracking purposes. So as you speak uh, with your original remarks, can you also speak to those issues at Chris concerns? Thank you.
1: Right. So. In short, the problem with digital contact contact tracing is that there's a whole new domain of privacy law and privacy regulation that applies because it's digital um, and that doesn't apply um, in traditional contact tracing. And there's a range of ethical concerns that go along with that. I mean, the privacy protections that we have for digital information many people think are too weak um, in a normal context. And and those concerns are just amplified in this moment. So, sure, Heather, you're mentioning the use of information collected through a digital contact tracing platform by government law enforcement or immigration enforcement officials. These are serious concerns, um, and it's it's not clear that there are um, ways to bracket that off efficiently. That is, to it, whatever data is collected um, by these apps, if it's identifiable and if it's accessible by a government agency, say a public health agency, then there's legitimate concerns that once that data exists, it can be... Used or accessed by other government agencies for more for for purposes that we feel individuals need to have warning about at a minimum and, and some ability to um, some protection over the, their their use of that information by um, government officials so so let me say so there's some constitutional law limiting the use of data collected from cell phones without a warrant um, in a criminal trial, right? But it's, it's not at all clear that such information couldn't be used in the course of a criminal investigation or as an aid in identifying a target for an investigation, so long as the in, is, is not introduced at trial. But another concern is it's not clear that those protections would apply to immigration enforcement in quite the same way. And so there's legitimate concerns by a number of communities, you know, including uh, immigrant communities that using this app or any app that collects their information
2: would lead to bad consequences legally for them. So, gentlemen... I, I know, Brian. You were talking about certain populations having difficulties uh, opting in to contact tracing, especially immigration immigrants who are coming in and not sure if they're going to get the protections. As we've seen, ISIS is willing to take evidence from criminal trials and other uh, government documents to show that they ever a. Uh, are not eligible for extensions in staying in this country and other reasons. But what about other more vulnerable populations? One that had been more historically uh, reached stigma, such as homeless, homeless people. And I want you to think back to 19th century, 18th century, even into the 1980s, in which the black, the sorry, the plague of Europe, in which they would actually put signs on doors to do a form of uh, very rudimentary quarantine and that created a stigma. And then we move into the 1980s, the AIDS crisis in which legislators would state that they wouldn't even act because they felt that it's only a certain population that is being affected by this disease. And contact tracing was almost not even a concept that people were willing to take because they were afraid if they told someone else they would be stigmatized. I, I think there was a few. There was a movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, in which he was afraid to discuss that he had HIV. He had, he'd been diagnosed by it with HIV/AIDS. So, all that to say, how are we going to address the homeless population that usually has three type of um, concerns traditionally: logistics, technology, and stigma. Logistics, obviously, their mobile population. Technology, because they don't always have smartphones. They just might have regular cell phones, like phones that don't have any uh, Bluetooth or GPS technology, and stigma. And anybody who wants to yeah. speak? No, that's great.
1: I mean, so the technology one um, kind of comes first. Digital contact tracing is of no use to you or to the community if you don't have a phone that's capable of running whatever the the app being used in the community is. And um, in some populations, perhaps especially homeless populations, though I don't have the data, um, would be less likely to um, have phones with, as you said, the relevant GPS or Bluetooth technology on them. So you need a phone that's somewhat up-to-date in order to be able to run apps built on the Google Apple API. Um, we, we do have, there, I mean, there is research about um, who has phones like this, and it's clear that people who are el- elderly are much less likely than younger people to have phones with this capability. Um and so that's threshold one. It doesn't do any good. The te- the limitation of the technology ties directly into who has or does not have the relevant phone. And Could so I just oh,
4: jump yeah. jump in there, Brian, real quick, just yeah. to just flesh that out a little bit in terms of what we do know currently. And you know, Pew the Pew Research Center has done a lot of work obviously on identifying, you know, and tracking smartphone use rates and like. Um, so, as of you know, February of last year, 2019, um, we know that from Pew data, about 80% of the population in the United States are smartphone users. Um, though, obviously, as Brian was saying, significantly lower rates of use amongst people over age 65, which is about 50% or so. Um, people with disabilities, which is about around 58% of um, people with disabilities, are, are smartphone owners and users. Um, and then people with sort of less than high school education, people with less than, who earn less than $30,000 per year, and people who live in rural areas, all being around sort of 70% um, uh, level. So, I mean, obviously, as Brian was saying, you know, as a result, these populations um, are likely to be, um, you know, may use the technology, digital contact tracing technologies in lower numbers um, thereby lessening effectiveness of the technology and the likelihood that they'll benefit. And that's the concern from a sort of equity and disparity perspective, right? Is that, um, you're going to have a, have an inequitable sort of distribution of benefit across different population groups of, of, the use of these technologies. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I think that sort of can potentially layer onto, if you look at sort of who COVID-19 is affecting the most, um, you know, particularly vulnerable population and communities within society, the elderly, as Brian mentioned earlier, are, are in many cases, the same populations who also have experienced this kind of digital divide, which again, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's rapidly shifting, um, you know, year over year, we're seeing more and more individuals within these groups becoming smartphone users, but it's still a divide and gap. So just wanted to flesh that out in terms of that first element that Brian was digging into.
1: Right, and then homeless populations in particular may face additional challenges, as you were um, mentioning, Wesley. So of course, there's concerns even if um, you were identified either via an app or via a public health official as a contact of someone who's tested positive. There's obvious concerns about lack of trust of institutions. that people who are already marginalized may may feel. But also, I think something to keep in mind across all populations really is that we should expect people to respond to the incentives as they see them. And especially because of the uncertainty about the seriousness of COVID, um, or the, the lack of clear information about the seriousness of COVID, people may perceive that the risk of being identified as a contact, or indeed the risk of being identified as a positive case, outweighs the benefit that you'd gain from the system in terms of treatment um, or recovery. So um, some members of homeless populations may feel that whatever sort of surveillance or potential quarantine um, public health officials would recommend or require of them um, wouldn't be worth the the cost to their ability to maintain their life as they have it. Um, And I think that's a serious concern, again, across a number of different populations, that in a context where people lack access to health care that's affordable. Um, people either already are unemployed or don't have job security. Um, people may face existing mental health conditions or addictions. Um, we can't expect that everyone will prioritize COVID-19 contact tracing over the range of other um, things that matter in their life, uh, you know, again, especially when it's uncertain that public health officials or their local hospitals will be able to help them even if they do get sick, um, or
4: just to, just to build on that. I mean, there, there is another side to this, though, that important to recognize that, um, that, you know, Brian and I have talked about a lot and others with our colleagues, but it's, it's that, um, you know, there is, there is, there, there is a way in which, Digital tech and mobile technologies are also serve as an enabler um, and, and can increase access- accessibility of some things that are otherwise hard to access and for almost people and people who tend to be more migrant and have less stable sort of living conditions and the like, you know, being able to carry around in your pocket a device that allows for you to have um, to sort of be um, active participants in this thing we call contact tracing. May provide some sort of opportunity and you know sort of on the other hand to to maybe overcome some of the more um, structural barriers to participation that otherwise exist um, the other the other element and aspect of that is that um, you know there there could be an argument that if this works, if using these technologies is actually more efficient and effective than the manual course, then we can. We can make a case ethically, financially, and otherwise, um, you know, within the systems of public health, to orient those kinds of more manual and traditional and more laborious resources to those, towards those communities that aren't being fully served by these technologies. Um, and, and that, again, can, can be, um, that's very important. They should certainly be directed towards those communities regardless. But if we can marshal those more limited resources towards um, communities where they're most in need, that's, that's great. It's a win-win. We don't know yet, though.
2: Yeah. Well, I have a question sorry.
3: on that. Okay.
2: Oh, <laughs> sorry. I have a quick follow up on that. Uh, definitely, you guys were hinting at there's no incentive. Joe was talking about that if we do give them devices, that could be the incentive. Uh, my thing is, let's say we do give them devices. Would they be able to fully uh, Participate in other services like telehealth, telemental health. Uh, maybe they they wouldn't feel too obligated to go to certain places because they are so afraid, uh, either because of so, um, government intervention. They'd be able to stay maybe in a shelter they feel comfortable with and still be able to speak to a provider who may not be able to reach that um, area. And and then the other concerns that we have to consider is what what else incentives are for government and private actors to give them those devices because uh, again we got to understand where's the money going to come for these devices is it going to be a tax incentive to give uh, devices to a needy population
1: great those are all really good points you raised wesley so i mean one thing to really emphasize here is that digital contact tracing even if we get it to work It can't, it's not a cure-all and it's not a silver bullet and it's not going to fix all of the other underlying problems in the system. It has to be seen as part of a much larger intervention in an attempt to um, Slow the spread of COVID, treat people who have been infected and start to actually repair and rebuild our society. So it doesn't do much good for vulnerable populations digital contact tracing isn't going to do much good unless it comes with obviously not only an ability to access it, so maybe um, if you don't have a phone, some, someone, the federal government say funding, um, funding phones for all who need them, but also if you don't have an ability to access the range of health and related services um, that you would need, then it's not going to solve those problems, right? So I think some of the suggestions you make, Wesley, are really well taken, like a phone that not only allowed for contact tracing, but also like free government funded telehealth and telemental health services and uh, free facilities for treatment and care, that would be great, right? Like that, that's what we need to even begin to tackle COVID, as well as the many other public health crises that we're facing right now, um, especially in low-income and vulnerable communities. And, and so digital contact tracing is, at best, one small piece of this big picture. Um, and, 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 we, and Joe was saying, there is some promise, some hope, that it can free up resources to do other things more efficiently. That it can benefit people who don't have access to more traditional um, resources as well. Um, mobile populations, migrant populations can use phones in ways that, um, you know, it's hard to access brick and mortar uh, hospitals um, or clinics. Um, yeah. The, but, uh, the other piece of this is is that it's not only
4: just one t- small potential piece of the sort of public health pie, but but it's also one piece of the digital pie. So, so there are other kinds of digital, so potential digital solutions out there that folks are trying, including symptom tracking and, and sort of more apps or, or even um, using SMS messaging for, for phones that don't have app capabilities to provide information and to support communication, as you're saying, either related to healthcare or to the pandemic and, the, and, and how to manage it uh, at an individual level. Um, so that, that's a big important thing. And, and then just to, I think we haven't mentioned this, but it's, it's really important, is that you know, from an epidemiological perspective, um, you know, the, the current estimates suggest that, you know, conservatively perhaps, but nonetheless, um, suggest that these technologies would need to be used by about 80% of smartphone users in order for them to, um, to actually suppress the epidemic. And that's, we're talking about about 50%, 56% of the population. Um, so 80% of smartphone users. And, and and it's true that those estimates also highlight that there could potentially be some decrease in transmission that would be realizable even with lower rates of technology adoption. But we don't know sort of those, what that spectrum, that threshold, those cutoffs look like at various points in terms of, um, you know, public acceptance and use of the technology. Um, so, so again, we're putting a lot of energy and thought and time into this. but Um, But you need a lot of people to use it in order for it to show its maximum sort of potential in theory again
3: Well and Joe, can you just speak a little bit more about the other options that are out there? We've talked a little a lot about the Apple Google potential partners, you know partnership that um, and their recommendations for the Bluetooth API um, based system what would we ideally want from a public health standpoint, if we were to use digital technologies to sort of augment contact tracing and the containment of COVID-19?
4: Yeah, so the first thing we wanna see, and I think some states, including Maryland, I believe have sort of you know, focused on this some, is better systems for, for supporting the manual piece. So you can use all sorts of electronic Databases and other kinds of systems to allow for, um, you know, Hopkins released, for example, a free course. Many of our listeners may have seen this uh, about a month ago, for to support training of individuals in, in traditional contact tracing, and, um, and the idea is that we need thousands and thousands of people to undergo this training and and other related training activities, and then to be. Um, Um, you you know, employed essentially by public health authorities in states uh, across states in order to support that process. Well, if you have that many people um, spread out across, you know, socially distanced and all of that across the United States who are trying to support this effort, you can use all sorts of digital solutions to support coordination of those efforts and harmonization of data across those, those systems. Um, in order to really bolster manual, traditional contact tracing. So that's number one, is just sort of let's put our digital energy and investments and technological, you know, best wishes into that, that, that capability. Um, and, then, and then I think, you know, at a, I think, I think we ought to be thinking, sometimes in, in the world of technology, we run towards the, the most uh, high-tech potentially, uh, potential solution where we need to be looking at some of the more low tech um, possibilities out there. And, and you can make that case, because it, it, it's gonna be more likely to be um, effective, because we know we have a track record of many of these capabilities and technology. We know we can survey populations using mobile phones. We know we can send SMSs and get responses. And, and we, know, we know a lot of, um, things about about how we can use the basic capabilities of all sorts of different kinds of phones beyond just smartphones in order to support public health um, communication, but also, uh, you know, so both pushing information out and and pulling information in that can be helpful to know where we have hotspots, where hotspots are are occurring and outbreaks are occurring, mini outbreaks and the like. Um, And we can know what extent people having difficulty accessing clinicals and other health related services, we can find these things out by using supportive technologies. Um, and, and we can support our clinical workers out there, right? We can create, and we do have some existing platforms to allow for better sharing of health information that would be useful to diagnosis, that would be useful to treatment, that would be useful to management of COVID within clinical environments and settings in a very coordinated way. We're trying to run all these sort of fancy and important clinical trials and those, those should continue in order to identify therapeutics and vaccines and all of those sorts of things. But we also just need ways in which doctors can talk to each other efficiently and effectively around the world even in order to support people in remote parts of the world who are trying to deal with COVID with very limited um, sort of clinical um, means. And and so I would I would, I would think those are the kinds of things we should be investing our time and energy in, uh, in addition to the digital contact tracing. But I think of that more as sort of the moonshot. You know, there, there are other possibilities out there.
3: And in terms of what you just mentioned, I think that Taiwan used a more of the supportive technologies in terms of their response. And they were able to push out, have a symptom tracker, and also give people information about uh, where to get care and what they should be looking out for. So, really providing information about COVID 19 by using technology um, in a way that was outside of just the contact tracing.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, we need to look at sort of, and, and again, like we're, there are these kind of cultural norms within different societies and countries around the world. And those translate out into into the use of mobile phones as well there are cultures of mobile phone use and and we need to look carefully at that in the united states and examine our own ways, the ways in which we use mobile phones our devices uh what sorts of um you know we're a very social media oriented society you know we we use platforms of facebook twitter instagram you know we go to youtube we do all these things that uh, many other people around the world do but those, that's where we get our information, and oftentimes many of us, and, um, and so we should be focusing on those, those norms um, for technology use and, and trying to develop uh, interventions that, again, or just information dissemination, as you are saying, through those platforms in ways that can increase reliability and trust and uh, accuracy of the kinds of things that we want um, folks to be aware of and to be responding to. Um,
3: are people going to be posting on Instagram and Facebook, COVID positive? Yeah, <laughs> seen each other that. recently. Yeah,
4: that might that might not be the direction we want to go, but um, but at least we can improve the quality of information that's out there, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I want to talk a little bit about a potential user consent, um, you know, terms and conditions that are on these apps. What are we looking for when we're thinking about digital contact tracing? Like, what would that consent or user um, term and conditions look like? And what would we need to be on there to really have public acceptability?
1: That, that's a great question and one that we and many others have thought a lot about. I mean, we're so used to just clicking accept um, to whatever terms of service agreements fly through our phone um, for whatever app we're using. And on on the one hand, I think a lot of people in the tech community and and outside of it felt that that's not quite good enough um, in this context because we want users to know what they're getting into and in, you know, maybe especially know what information is being collected and um, and who has access to it. Right. I mean, the, and, and for what purpose um, before they say yes. And that certainly seems reasonable. And so kind of the, the, the best or the gold standard along that dimension is still clicking accept to something, but laid out in a way that's very clear, maybe with more than one screen that you go through with just a a few clear sentences on each screen explaining what's up. Um, Someone can click through it without reading, but at least it's an attempt to convey information clearly. Um, And all of the, a system like that frankly would suffice for almost any sort of privacy protection in existing law, that is an app that had an affirmative consent model that was super clear, like I just described, um, would likely authorize the app um, developer or whomever's behind it to use the information so long as they did it in the way that they expressed in the terms, right? Um, But I think there's, pressure then that comes from a different direction here, which is that if users have to affirmatively consent in this very specific way, and maybe even more to the point, have to decide to download the app, put it on their phone, decide to click yes to all of the important terms, and then maybe also turn on their Bluetooth and leave it on in order for it to be enabled. there's a concern among many people more on the public health side that that system just won't result in the level of buy-in and use, um, that would actually be effective. So as Joe was pointing out, it might be that we would need 60% of smartphone users to actually use the system. And it's hard to imagine that people would care enough, that enough people would care enough to go through all that trouble. And, and so a, a debate has, kind of emerged about whether something less than this gold standard of consent would still be permissible, both legally and ethically. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think the, I think something like affirmative consent plus a lot of messaging to explain what's going on and how this is going to work and why you should want to participate Again, this is in the hypothetical world where we have an app that actually <laughs> works. Um, but I think that that's a better approach. But there's a lot of questions raised then as um, different advocates or app developers think about, can we get away with some, something less than um, requiring users to consent so affirmatively? So something like, um, for example, pushing out Uh, an app kind of automatically with uh, an operating system update on your phone so that and then maybe you can't even delete it. So something like these built-in apps that Apple or Google or your uh, cell phone um, network provider has just preloaded on your phone. We could imagine a world in which this contact tracing app gets kind of pushed out to everyone's phone in that way. And and again, then we get into the complicated questions about whether, what kind of consent would users have to give, um, there and, and whether that's good enough legally or, uh, ethically.
3: And do we ever get to the place in the United States where we could envision government saying you have to do this, there will be an app and you will have to have it on your phones. If you have a phone, And we're going to trace you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So in a way, that's like the way Joe and I and our team think about it. That's a slightly separate question from the consent in the phone, right? It's more like this exterior. You know, you could imagine different systems. It could be threats or it could be incentives um, to get people to kind of go onto their phone and click whatever it is they have to click um, on their phone to make the thing work. I mean, yeah, um, you can imagine a world in which the government requires it. Um, look, st- state, state governments in particular have been requiring us on threat of criminal sanction to do all kinds of stuff lately. And there's no, to my mind, no obvious legal reason why state governments couldn't mandate use of a phone. Now, I think that they're ethical. So that is, there's no obvious legal reason why they couldn't. Um, There's lots of ethical reasons why maybe they shouldn't. And and I'm not sure, and and here's one public health reason as well. I'm not sure it would end up with a better result because you you need people in practice, not just to have the app on their phone, but to want to A, carry their phone with them wherever they go um, and to cooperate in any number of other ways, like keeping the phone turned on, um, or when you get an alert actually contacting public health or accurately entering symptoms or test results um, or um, you know, caring enough about the system to want to participate at any number of stages along the way. And so I just think mandating use in addition to being kind of scary and, and Orwellian it may backfire in any number of these ways because people can find ways to not comply, even if it is technically mandatory. You'd rather encourage buy-in some other way.
3: We'll all be leaving our phones at home.
1: Yeah,
4: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I I mean, it's interesting. I would sort of, if you're, for those who are curious, I'd encourage folks to go to your settings on your phone right now and type in COVID and see what pops up. Right. There's a, Apple and Google have done their part they they've installed a the technology and the capability on phones already um so you'll find something that comes up that says you know if you wanna if you wanna um you know participate in this exposure notification capability, please go ahead and install one of the apps that states are developing you know and that so there are la- layers to this as Brian was saying in terms of thinking about how this information like who who has a right and and who has um who uh, to to sort of mandate or to to sort of automate um, the, the 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 installation of technologies that relate to these kinds of capabilities, um, and and at what point do users ha- should users have a say and in, and in, in, into what what kinds of options we ought to be able to opt in or opt out of, um, and so those kinds of governance rules the rules of governance the rules of the road again about thinking about. Um, the interests of individuals and balancing that with the interests and sort of um, the effective public health response are important. The, the question about mandates, though, really, um, in our I think view, um, needs to be driven by a number of different factors. And um, I think the first on the list really is is this technology. Is there reasonable a reasonable basis to think that this to- technology is likely to be effective? Um, you, don't, you can't really mandate something for which you have no confidence in. And I think mean, you can think of sort of flu vaccine mandates in a similar way, right? We know the flu vaccine is effective. Um, and, and so we require people who, um, who have uh, healthcare workers and others, right, within hospitals to get a flu vaccine. If they want to work, they get vaccinated. And that's uh, to reduce spread in, in environments where there is high risk. Um, but, but we don't have that level of confidence in these technologies um, and they serve a different function. Um, so, so there, there's a lot of discussion and debate about that issue right now, um, looking into the various factors that ought to play into these kinds of um, decisions
3: and you mentioned again the efficacy or the fact that we don't know whether or not these these apps would even be effective. So how much information are these technology companies giving the public about whether or not these are sensitive and specific and effective, you know, these apps and how much should they be giving to the public before people have to have them on their phones or use them.
1: That's a really interesting question too. So it's fascinating to watch what Apple and Google have done and also haven't done in this space. And so one choice that they made pretty early on was that they didn't want to develop their own app. Um, you know, So they have this collaborative API, which allows other app developers to create an exposure notification app that then can run on both Apple and Google phones. Um, but Apple and Google aren't developing an app themselves, right? And so that's an interesting choice because, it, well, and not only that, but Apple and Google in the terms of service for the API, so what developer app developers have to agree to in order to use the API, it's limited to public health authorities at the state or local level to develop these apps. So it's not even open to kind of commercial app developers acting on their own to use the Google Apple API, unless they have been contracted right by a public health authority. So the, that creates this space where there's no centralized app and Apple and Google are able to, in a way, like distance themselves or wash their hands of whatever gets produced at these more local levels. And, and they've lately, since releasing the API, Haven't really been engaging in the space of public discourse either in terms of promoting its use or encouraging really anything. And I think that's interesting. Like we could imagine two different, very different scenarios. One where Apple and Google aggressively push this, and then people, you know, they develop their own collaborative app and they aggressively push it out, and people um, kind of backlash against that because we don't necessarily trust the tech companies. That's one scenario, but there's another scenario where Apple and Google use their marketing might and their uh, PR savvy to develop something that people actually wanted to use and felt comfortable with. It's hard actually to think of any uh, pair of entities in the United States right now that could garner as much Goodwill as Apple and Google, frankly, like, so if what we really wanted was a, a, an app that was something close to ubiquitous, um, maybe it, it would have had to be the tech companies taking the lead on that. And, and they've chosen not to. And I think that's really interesting.
3: Do you see a space for any other entities to sort of take the lead in, either encouraging the use of any type of digital tracing or tracking, I don't wanna say tracing, but um, the use of digital technologies to help contain COVID, like employers or just stores or public um, transportation facilities.
1: No, I think that's fascinating. So um, I think there's, right, divide the world into government versus private sector. and. At the moment, it's mostly state governments who are trying to develop apps. And some some state governments already have contact tracing apps available, um, sometimes without using the Google Apple API. North Dakota was the front runner here. Um, You can can find their app. It's called Cares 19. And it uses GPS location data from your cell phone to achieve a similar function. Um, There's been lots of security issues with that app. but it was an in some ways uh, a notable attempt at being a forerunner here um, and and so state in, you could imagine so but the problem of course, is that there are fifty state governments, and so if there are fifty different apps but people are able to travel between states in some way I mean hopefully we'll return to some form of interstate travel soon um, it's not clear that these apps will be able to talk to each other in a way that's effective um, or that information can be effectively collected across state lines. So I think on the government side, there's one path forward where states, especially within a region, sort of collaborate to develop some kind of app ecosystem where they can the apps function across state lines and data can be shared and evaluated. So, a kind of tri state area or Eastern, you know, 95 corridor app or family of apps, even if they're state by state, that work together. So, um, that's one picture of the future that uh, is possible, right? Um, I think you're right, Heather, though. There's a whole question about what private sector entities will do here. So, if Amazon mandates that its workers all have to use a particular app, you know, or Walmart or, um, or the federal government for all of its employees scattered around the country. S- separate legal questions raised when it's a government employer, but by and large, that's a possible world too. And you could see lots of reasons why employers would want to do that and if enough large employers get behind a particular um, app or a particular approach workers may feel enough pressure to adopt it that it will become something like mainstream but we're nowhere close to that yet and partly it's because of this 50 state breakdown in the app development using google apple so amazon operates in all 50 states right so It makes no sense to mandate uh, 50 different apps for its users, it would most likely look for a different approach that doesn't use the Google Apple API. This is all, I'm sorry, a very long winded way of saying there's no clear path (laughs) to anything like uh, ubiquity or or even widespread adoption of any particular app or even approach to
4: content tracing or exposure
1: notification. Yeah, just to, I mean,
4: Ryan's right, and I, but I think your your question, Heather, is really signals the fact that, you know, in the absence of, we know we know state governments and all government agencies sort of tend to operate slowly in these things, and, and employers are, tend to be more nimble. So, so there is the potential that we'll see sort of these technologies being rolled out more at that level, at the institutional level, um, and trials being occurring sort of in formal, in formal ways. In various settings and that'll probably take place most um in what we call sort of congregate environments or settings so places where individuals tend to group together um employers meet we've seen significant outbreaks in sort of meat packing facilities and other places like that we've got this whole sort of um concern about the fall and, and students going into schools uh, both at universities and other school um you know within other school settings and so the thought is, you know, are institutions like universities and others going to be rolling out um, or even requiring students to use technologies of some various sorts in order to uh, get a handle on, on disease outbreaks within those environments? And so I think, yeah, I think it's a real, it's a real thing. It's, it's something that we're, we're looking at, we're interested in. Um, and of course, all sorts of questions about different sorts of rights and laws and, and responsibilities in, the con- in that context, both for employees, but also for students and others. So yeah, I mean, we've already seen wearables, so not these, like other kinds of technologies being rolled out in, in warehouses and other types of facilities where they serve a similar kind of function, right? Where they, people wear a little device on their belt and when, they, when they're within proximity to each other, it pings and it vibrates and alerts them that they're within a certain distance of another individual. And that's meant to serve as sort of a, as basically personal protective equipment that allows for those individuals to then move, right? And, but that, those data then could be transmitted onwards um, to the employer and to others, um, and obviously privacy and other related concerns about people's movements within those kinds of settings and monitoring them, um, though we know we do that already. We have video cameras, we have other types of capabilities, we monitor email of employees, we, I say we, I mean employers, do that regularly with legal protection so, yeah, so we're moving into another kind of technology that has similar types of capabilities and um, thinking about that. Brian and I have been talking a lot about, well, what happens when people leave the workplace? So should employers be able to then follow individuals' um, events, the, the interactions they have in their proximity events when they leave that setting? Um, well, we had some... Yeah, go
3: ahead. sorry, that just brought up to me the newest or one of the newest New York executive orders that sort of doesn't allow sick leave coverage for, for employees who go to states in which there is an outbreak currently, because we sort of had it under control. So when you come back to New York, if you get sick with COVID, you don't have sick leave coverage anymore. So that sort of mandate could take place, I mean, you know, I don't know what the results will be, the pushback in terms of that, but that is something that's possible. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about the MBA's bubble that's been created and they're doing that where they have wearables and they are having tracking people's symptoms. They have to the input that they've taken their temperature, that they don't have the symptoms of COVID, and then they get sort of a green light to go in when they go get food in their congregate settings, they swipe in to, to access, you know, that shared space. So you do see a model, models are emerging. And I think maybe other employers and and maybe schools will take note and implement those those newest um, if we see that they work right like those new models
2: yeah
3: what would you consider responsible use or like a guiding principle for the use of of digital public health technologies for this response?
4: yeah thanks I, so i I think. You know, we in our work in our report that um, you referred to, I think in our introduction, you know, our group at Johns Hopkins sort of tapped into this wide um, network of, of colleagues and experts uh, around the U.S. and globally to think about these issues, um, and we developed uh, guidance that supports the ethics and governance of digital contact tracing technologies. Um, and so, our our work started with the identification of some um, ethics principles and and we recognize that those ethics principles exist within this kind of ecosystem again of various factors including um you know the legal issues and the public health needs and the performance of those technologies and the capabilities and the science our scientific understanding of covid and our um, data that we can sort of uh, that we have and that we need to collect with respect to public adoption and acceptance and all of this sort of interrelates so the ethics principles sit within again this interconnected uh, landscape of different considerations and issues and frameworks to think about digital contact system, um, systems. But the principles we identified were sort of, we tried to do it in a way that that sort of highlighted these issues that we've been discussing today for the most part and identified five principles. And um, I'm not gonna get into the weeds about them unless that's of interest, but. The first one focuses on the need for transparency and public engagement as part of a sort of inclusive digital public health response. The second looks at um, the need for digital public health responses to represent the least infringement on civil liberties, such as the ones we've been discussing today, including privacy and others, in order to accomplish, defined public health goals. And that's really important. We need to articulate public health authorities and others need to articulate what the goal is of the technology first. And then we can look and see um, whether the technologies are being rolled out and the data are being um, used in ways that are consistent with minimal infringements on civil liberties, given the sort of public health context of the pandemic and the, the, the sort of exigencies of the circumstances around that. And then we, we focused on a principle that looks at the use of digital public health technologies uh, and, and related data needing to be guided by, again, best available evidence. So we've been hammering on this issue throughout this discussion about the need for us to know whether or not these technologies work. Well, that's that's an ethics principle as well. If something's not working and we're rolling it out and we're putting resources and energy and backing it, it's, it's not an appropriate use of our time and, and energy. And we could be using those energies for other purposes and we're burdening people for no reason. So, so this, is a, this is one of our key ethics principles. And then the fifth, uh, sorry, the fourth, um, focuses on the responsible use of digital technology requiring meaningful governance and accountability. And our work tried to take some steps in that direction, but others have done a lot of it, work on those issues of sort of what are the rules of the road? How should we be thinking about data governance? Um, what kind of mechanisms need to be in place to ensure accountability? Um, and, and how can users effectuate those kinds of interests um, in accountability? And then, uh, lastly, um, again, um, you know, Wesley and others were asking us about you know issues of disparities and the like. We we articulated a principle that relates to um, the need for technology to be rooted in a commitment to equity, and we play that out in different ways in our report. But um, one one way in which we think that's it's important is is to really be, be looking at data very closely to see to what extent um technology being accessed by and used by and serving populations of various sorts that do face various types of disparities Um, and then to ensure that again that the data then on the back end aren't being used in ways that are unjust unjust or inequitable so that those are sort of five broad principles that we've articulated in our report um, and we have sort of specified them more in the report as well
3: say you talked and we've spoken about the just dearth of evidence here to show that these um, digital uh, technologies work in this public health space to sort of contain COVID-19. Are there any studies that are currently in existence of which you're aware or do you foresee that any are on the horizon?
4: yeah so I'm not aware um, I'm, su- I'm sure there are so in the world of technology development, as, as many know, there, there's sort of a process through which um, technology developers create tech- these platforms and include sort of alpha and beta testing, testing you know, within sort of closed systems and then into in the real world and that's a form of study you know it's, it's the way in which these technologies are typically develop, but they happen in a way that is sort of you know the traditional Way of thinking about it is that you know you put things out there and you see how they whether they break and in what ways and then you come back and fix it, and that that approach um, works uh, often. But it it, it also uh, has to align in this case with again the sort of layers of com- complexity around trust in the public health response and the systems of response, and um, in terms of you know meeting the the significant demands that we have right now to get a, control, get, get a hold of this virus um, in a way that um, is most effective as we can. In that case, it does make sense to turn more so towards sort of methods that we've developed in, in scientific areas and, and look towards um, you know, more systematic forms of data collection and analysis and, and research. And so there, there are, there's obviously like a, a big interest in figuring this out and doing it systematically, methodologically, and following these methods. On the horizon, I think um, you know CDC has announced recently some funding opportunities to focus specifically on evaluation of these technologies in different types of settings, um, and there are other funders out there who are who are recognizing the need to do this um, and so I think we will see some some data on this. Most of the research so far is focused on things like public polling and opinion polling and um, to look at acceptance and use and, and the like um, on various on various aspects and features of use and collection of these data Um, so so yeah i think i think we we definitely need more research what big question again is how do you facilitate research in an environment where the technology may produce data that would be difficult to use for research purposes so depending again on the technology the platforms whether or not they're encrypted and and um, anonymized and like anonymity is fine but but you know the type of data that you're transmitting and sharing with researchers needs to be valuable and useful, so.
3: And I would think that would also make it quite difficult to identify vulnerable populations depending on what level of information is included in that data.
4: Yeah, and and we have a long tradition in public health, as you know, in sort of, um, in doing research with vulnerable populations in ways that preserve their interests and confidentiality. Um, And you can, you can de-identify data sets in various ways, and and that can be done before data are shared with researchers, but you can aggregate it at the population level in order to be able to understand some of these issues and disparities. So, um, so hope, hope we'll be able to do that, but um, we have to do it carefully and we have some principles and ways of doing that.
3: Thank you. Um, At this point, I, I did have one other question about whether or not the, recommendations with regard to uh, the use of this digital technology or potential digital technologies would change depending on the number of cases the location and i know that we talked about the variability across all 50 states and we talk about the state government sort of having this role because the state governments do have a public health role right like they have the power with regard to a lot of public health but there, you're going to see that variability. do you have particular recommendations for state government in terms of what they're seeing on the ground, like how how many cases they have, what the transmissibility is that they're seeing, their particular population, and you know whether it's a metropolitan area versus a more rural setting? that was a lot but sorry uh,
1: I mean, I think one recommendation that I think our team all agrees too, is that we really can't jump into this space with both feet um, until we kind of know whether the technology is gonna work and how best to implement it. And uh, in some ways that's disappointing because we could imagine that if we can roll out something quickly, we could use it you know, next, next month or later this year to help us safely reopen. But for anything even as large as a city, it's just hard to see this working soon in any way that's effective. And maybe I only speak for myself here, but I think that that's worth keeping in mind that at this stage, we're still, it's still the testing phase and like maybe we'll develop technology in response to COVID that will be ready to roll out effectively next time or, or next year. But it's, I think a mistake to imagine that even if cases go up, we have anything in the arsenal that's going to, of digital contact tracing that's going to really help us. But let me say, unless we're talking about something like the NBA bubble or a college campus where we use digital contact tracing paired with a lot of other surveillance on a very kind of um, finite and limited population, Whom we ask at least not to travel very far outside of this protected space. And it may be, as Heather, you were hinting at before, I mean, it may be that that's how this technology starts to get a foothold in real life, where it's more like isolated or semi isolated, smaller groups of people, either within a workplace, a certain profession, or a certain campus, start to utilize specific technology as part of a broader approach, and then it could grow from there. And that's something that I think you're right, like if the balance of protecting as the virus spreads um, more and more, I mean, we're already seeing an increase in the last, significant increase just in the last few weeks nationwide, the balance starts to tip towards more aggressively trying out these models um, so that we can Safely reopen. Yeah, and
4: that's... I think there's there's a um, there's a technical aspect to your question. I think, which is, you know, in different settings and environments and contexts, to what extent will these technologies be useful and effective? You are in a very rural area where your network coverage is somewhat poor, and you have, um, um, you know, and, and the system maybe relies on. On networks, then maybe you'll have issues. If you're in a very, if you're in a New York City and you, and you're living in a very small apartment and amongst a number of others who live in apartments surrounding you, and you, and your phone's constantly pinging because um, your neighbor, right, or somebody else in proximity as you walk down a crowded street is sort of, um, you know, creating these alerts, then maybe you get a lot of false positives and and you have a lot of you know a lot of noise in the system and that's really problematic. So there there are lots of technical questions that are being some some technologists are sort of trying to refine and work work that out but but I, I think yeah I think we're we're still we're still in a mode of sort of learning as we go and um, and trying to figure out you know what capabilities are going to be most valuable and should we be focusing on uh, in order to make it make sure that if we are to use this as Brian says Either now or into the future, for other pandemics, we've tested things out in a way that, when we've learned, and we're we're able to sort of um, roll something forward.
3: So we should all be cautiously optimistic, yeah, about digital <laughs> contact tracing, the same way we are for the vaccine and the treatment for this disease moving Could
1: forward. I speak briefly to the federal legislation angle, which please you mentioned before, but. Um, FTC FTC and FCC, maybe, we hadn't touched
4: on that, but I don't know if you want to mention it as well.
1: That's where I cut off. I I, I, I was, um, but no, I was, so people may have noticed that there's a number, or we mentioned before that there's a number of bills pending in Congress um, related to digital contact tracing. And I think it's worth thinking about the federal government's role here and what it could do or what maybe what it should have done um, differently. So state governments are charged with public health, but the federal government could have provided a lot more support and still could perhaps to get this technology up and running and rolled out. So the bills that are pending in Congress establish a kind of floor of privacy protection specifically tailored to digital contact tracing, some of them specifically tailored to the COVID, to the use of digital contact tracing in response to COVID. And that's helpful because before, in the absence of this legislation it's, there's this uh, mess of um, FTC and FCC enforcement of regulations that is just unclear at at best. And so clarity in the space would be useful, um, particularly if the floor of privacy protections um, that's established by Congress Um, clearly protect certain civil liberties. So a number of the bills would prohibit discrimination on the basis of data collected by an app, a contact tracing app. Um, And some, ideally, a legislation like this could also prohibit the use or misuse of data collected by government law enforcement. So Senator Cantwell's bill comes closest to this by prohibiting some interagency sharing of information. Um, but it could, the bills could go farther to ensure protections of this sort. But there's still problems with these bills because they, they only establish a floor of protection, so they don't go far enough to create a kind of homogeneous legal environment across 50 states. And state laws could be more privacy protective In California, for example, there's a complex digital privacy law and the federal legislation wouldn't change those rules. So app developers would still have to respond to potentially 50 different legal environments when they're releasing their app. But also importantly, there's no funding provisions in these bills to actually try to encourage the development of these apps or no attempt to create a kind of mainstream approach. We mentioned before that the federal government encouraged Apple and Google to work together to develop the API, but then left it to Apple and Google to basically decide what that's going to look like. Um, And we could imagine much more leadership on the part of the federal government, either Congress or the executive branch, to push forward the development of the technology to properly fund it to um, establish a kind of um, rules for the road about what this was going to look like and, and how it would be developed, even if ultimately it, it was the prerogative of state governments to determine whether to implement it or not.
3: Thank you. I was thinking in terms of, and this is not directly on point with what you just said, but when you were talking about like the NBA bubble and having similar sort of models that we want to be so careful to not leave out those vulnerable populations that Wesley talked about, like people who don't have that sort of space in which they inhabit on a regular basis. And so would just be left out of any kind of tracking or, you know, support that exists for COVID-19.
1: That's so right. I mean, the NBA bubble is a very privileged thing to be a part of. And and so too are college campuses. Um, And yeah, I mean, um, the goal Joe is outlining or that some of, you know, one of our core principles that we think we all should be committed to in the development of the technology is that it's used and implemented equitably to benefit all people and, and not, Um, burden people and it's it's frankly unclear how we get from here to there Um, how we could given our the limitations of the existing systems and the existing legal infrastructure and uh, uncertainty about both COVID and the digital response um, even if we can imagine effective use of technology within a bubble it's very hard to imagine the effective use of the technology in a way that's equitable for all people. And that's a serious concern.
0: Thank
3: you. Uh, Wesley, did you have any additional questions at this point? Or Tim, Tim, I think has a question,
0: please.
2: Uh, Hello. uh, uh, First, um, where can the listener get a
4: copy of your report? Uh, Thanks, Tim. So, So the report is actually published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, and it was published for with free access um, for free download. And so folks can navigate. Um, you can just sort of Google search, probably the easiest way to find it, for um, digital contact tracing and ethics or governance, and throw the terms Johns Hopkins in there, and it should pop up with a link to the download on the JHU Press website. The other place to find it is in Amazon, actually. Um, we posted it to... to uh, to, Amazon has, has agreed to, uh, to, to publish it and they, they have it out there available. Individuals can either purchase uh, a book or they can download it for free to a Kindle or other sort of
1: okay. e-reader. That's and Maybe we can drop the link in the show notes.
4: Yes. Yes, we can do that. Terrific.
1: Then. Thank you. Sure. There you go. And, and then touching on Heather's question, um, we seem to be regulating largely on a federal and state level. But the spike seemed disproportionately to occur at the city level. And uh, in, in your opinions, are cities actually the correct government entity to deal with pandemics? That's a terrific question. And a city like New York might have the resources to deal with it in a way that other cities don't. And so, I think the short answer is yes, but because um, metro areas, for one thing, metro areas cross state lines um, and county lines. And there's no way to effectively coordinate a a metro area response without these multi layers of government involvement. Um, But that's not to say that a city like New York couldn't take the lead on something like developing an app Um, in this context. Um, I think a big question that is because of the size of the city government and frankly the goodwill that the city government has among many people. I think cities might be a better place um, for pandemic response than other levels of government because people often feel more of a connection to their city than to their state or to their country in some cases, Um, more of a communal vibe Um, but another problem is funds, right? So, um, any effective response will, will require an awful lot of money and cities already are running pretty thin, especially in response to COVID. Um, so maybe the, the yes, but answer is sure. It's great if cities take the lead as long as it involves the ready cooperation of state and federal governments, as well as flow of funds. Downward to the local level. Okay. The other thing I I would add to Brian's
4: comment is, um, yeah, I think I think New York maybe even has rolled out um, some trialed some technologies like this across the city um, to limited sort of uh, effect. But um, but they have I, my sense is New York has has invested in other types of technologies uh, such as the ones I was mentioning earlier to work with um, tech companies. In order to support um, information communication systems um, that are needed for manual contact or traditional contact tracing, and to sort of strengthen that, so those are those are kinds of important investments for cities to make if they want to be able to amplify their capabilities on that front. The other the other group, population, and um, nation to think about is sort of tr- tribal entities and communities across the U.S. And uh, which, as we know, have, have also been significantly and disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and tend to live more rural and, and have um, other kinds of, um, you know, governance rights and the like. And so, and so we ought to be focusing on, on that as well and, and, and supporting those communities and thinking through some of these issues as well as, um, you know, providing resources that are needed in order to do manual contact tracing. Um, and to explore attitudes and perceptions towards other forms of, of you know, technology supports for COVID-19, whether it be for contact tracing or others, other purposes, um, within those communities. Um, and so, so I, hope, I hope we can also think about that a bit more as a, as a, as a country. Okay, thank you.
1: I, I have no other questions.
3: Thank you so much. We're, we have reached the end of our time. <laughs> so thank you, Joe. Thank you, Brian. Thank so you, much God. for participating in this. Oh, it's such a pleasure speaking with you today.
4: Thanks for having us. We'll have to do this again when the world is changed.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you all. This was a great conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Tim Peterson, Eric Friedman, and Alex Cardaris.